Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started. Gary said I had to introduce myself this morning, so, um, you know, it's kind of hard when you're as humble as me to, uh, to introduce yourself, but we'll figure out something. No. Uh, well, thanks for coming back out and uh, looking forward to a great day. Really, I've uh, uh, been looking forward to these particular uh, topics uh, since I started putting together the, uh, the conference, and so... I hope you found the first two sessions, Friday and Saturday, to be of some value and edifying and, and really uh, hopefully encouraging. Uh, but as we build up to tonight, when we're going to give a plain and simple gospel presentation and talk about how to share the gospel clearly and accurately, uh, we have two other topics that we want to get to first. And uh, both of these are more uh, targeting believers and, and the whole sanctification process and how we can live by faith and enjoy the grace that we first met at the cross when we came to know the Lord, and now uh, we're going to live by that grace. And so before we get to that, just a quick reminder that uh, my two new books that were new since the last time I was here, they're actually brand new, are Top Ten Reasons and Weekly Words of Life. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to check those out, come by uh, the table. We'd love to talk to you about that. And then, of course, the big DVD set. Uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception, which is also available as a download. You know, sometimes these days people don't have a DVD player anymore, uh, so you can get it in either format. Uh, but that's uh, 14 hours of really walking through the biblical teaching on uh, the, the end times from Satan's perspective. In other words, what is Satan trying to do as he seeks to overcome uh, this world? And we know that he is... Uh, the God of this age and the prince of the power of the air and the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, but we also know who wins in the end, and that's the exciting part. Uh, uh, so uh, that's back there. And then don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. These little cards, they look like my business cards, but they're not. They say sign up for the newsletter on them and just have a line for you to put your email on it. If you're not already getting Not By Works uh, uh, emails, uh, sign up for that. We'd love to stay in touch uh, with you on that. So I want to start with some foundational uh, verses that really set the stage for what we're going to talk about, and then we're going to be focused on Hebrews chapter 12. So if you want to go ahead and be turning to Hebrews 12, that's going to be our primary text uh, for this first session. Uh, but I want to set the stage by talking about uh, grace in the Christian life. And I know you're familiar with this verse. I think I've seen it on some of your promotional uh, materials here at Grace Bible Church. Uh, but it says in 2 Peter 3.18, grow at the very end of the letter there, grow in the grace, in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So grace is not just something that relates to that moment we place our faith in Christ and receive the free gift of eternal life. Uh, we've talked a lot about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith uh, or Titus uh, three, five, not by works of righteousness, which we've done. Uh, so grace is obviously well known as a key component of our eternal salvation. And we're going to really talk about that in detail tonight when we talk about the plain and simple gospel message. But sometimes we forget that grace is very much a key part of our Christian life and Christian living. Uh, in fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, God is able to make all grace abound toward you. And we're very familiar with uh, what he says in chapter 12, uh, when Paul is describing his experience that he had when he was caught up to the third heaven and talks about his thorn in the flesh, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. This is the Lord talking to Paul. And Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
And Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So I call this grace for the race, um, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Uh, we are in a race. Um, you know, I memorized, I'm sure many of you have too, these two verses when I was just a kid. I grew up in a Christian family and my, my mom had me and my sisters in BMA, Bible Memory Association, since we were real little. And I can remember we had those little books uh, where you had to memorize verses each week and then you had to say them on Sunday. We had to say them to one of my parents, uh, usually my mom, and they would, you know, sign off on them. And of course, I was a procrastinator. I was always behind. And so I never forget almost every Sunday afternoon when we got home from church, before she would let me go out and play, I had to be able to say those verses. And so many a Sunday afternoon after lunch, my first hour or so was spent in my bedroom cramming to remember those, uh, those verses and memorize them. But I memorized this one, one of many. And uh, it's always held a special place uh, in my life. So to introduce uh, this passage and this message, I want to tell you a story about a marathon runner. So I want you to go back in your mind's eye to the year 1980. Some of you may be familiar with the name Rosie Ruiz. Rosie Ruiz. She was a Cuban-American marathoner who moved to America from Havana when she was eight years old. And on April 21st, 1980, Ruiz won the Boston Marathon's female category with a time of 2.31.56. At the time, it was the fastest female time in Boston Marathon history and the third fastest female time ever recorded in any marathon. However, suspicions quickly mounted about Ruiz. For example, observers noticed that she was not panting or coated in sweat her thighs were less lean and muscular than would be expected for a world-class marathon runner. And also, her time of 2.31.56 was a striking improvement, more than 25 minutes ahead of her reported time in the New York City Marathon just six months earlier. And when asked by a reporter why she didn't seem fatigued after the grueling race, she said, Well, I, I got up with a lot of energy this morning. Interesting. Some uh, female competitors in the race thought it was odd that when asked what she had noticed about the suburb of Wellesley while running through it, it's a famous turn in the Boston Marathon where uh, students at Wellesley College would, would always be there traditionally cheering on the leaders in the race, um, she, she said she hadn't noticed any of anybody there, any students there. Most significantly, though, no other runners could recall seeing her in the race. She later released stress test results showing her resting heart rate as 76. Now, for me, or maybe Gary, 76 would be pretty impressive. I'd be happy with a resting heart rate of 76, but most female marathoners have a resting heart rate in the 50s. Canadian runner Jacqueline Garou, who was told that she was leading the race at the 18-mile mark, but she never saw Rosie Ruiz pass her. Patty Lyons was told she was second in the race at the 17-mile mark as she passed by, but again, she never saw Rosie pass her. Uh, several spotters at checkpoints throughout the course also never remembered seeing Ruiz in the first group of women, and she didn't show up in any pictures or video footage. Well, as you're beginning to uh, figure out, it turns out she had not run the entire race. She jumped onto the course less than a mile from the finish line. 
Two spectators, Harvard students, John Faulkner and Sola Mahoney, recalled seeing Ruiz burst out of a crowd of onlookers on Commonwealth Avenue half a mile from the finish. Now, she didn't really think this plan through very well. Um, and after a short and swift investigation, she was stripped of her title eight days after the race. Although she never admitted her fraud publicly, she did admit it to an acquaintance who recorded it sometime later. And Ruiz claimed that, you know, I never really intended to win. Uh, I just, you know, wanted to place pretty high. And she said, you know, when I jumped out of the crowd, I had no idea I was the, the, that the first woman hadn't gone by yet and that I would end up winning. She said, believe me, I was as shocked as anyone that I came in first. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. But uh, it was later, by the way, discovered that she had also cheated in the New York City Marathon. And it won't surprise us to know that Ruiz went on to live a life of crime, ultimately arrested multiple times for fraud and embezzlement and even cocaine dealing. Sadly, Ruiz died two years ago, July 8, 2019. She didn't finish the Boston or New York City marathons well, and she didn't finish the race of life well either. What would cause someone to take the easy way out in a race? Well, that's the question as we look at grace for the race. The Christian life is a, is a race. It's a journey. It involves ups and downs, good times and difficult times, accomplishments and failures, joy and heartache. The life that we live sometimes involves moments of beaming pride, but also times of regret. How can we run this race effectively? Yeah, the Bible gives us everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. And this text uh, this morning in Hebrews 12 gives us some important, some important principles on how to finish strong. How to finish strong. You know, my uh, father-in-law used to joke about certain preachers and certain sermons, and I seem to recall him making this joke about some of mine from time to time that, boy, that was a good sermon. It would have been better if he'd have quit when he was through, though. <laughs> well, that might be good advice for a preacher or teacher or speech giver. Make sure you quit when you're through. <laughs> but when it comes to the Christian life, it's a slightly different caution, and the caution is don't quit until you're through. Don't quit until you're through. Finish strong. You know, Christian history is filled with examples of Christians who quit before they were through. Christians who gave up when the going got tough dropped out because they couldn't handle it or tried to take a shortcut around life's difficulties. So I want to break down these two verses and just give us five ways to, to finish strong that I see uh, sort of uh, represented in this uh, famous passage from the writer of Hebrews. Let me contextualize Hebrews for you. I'm sure you're familiar with the context, but just to make sure it's in the forefront of our minds. You know, Hebrews was written, we don't know by who. I mean, I know, but and for the right price, I'll pay you. I mean, I'll tell you. But uh, no, we really don't know. It's anonymous. I tend to lean toward the view that Paul wrote it, but we cannot be dogmatic about it. Um, but uh, it was written ultimately under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Word of God, the authoritative uh, Word of God. And it was written in the late 60s, roughly 67 to 69 AD. And it was a time when the church was about 30 years old. And many of the original recipients of this letter had gotten saved in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So a lot of the audience was you know, had been Christians for several decades, three decades. And uh, there was a mixture, of course, some were getting saved all the time. 
But these were believers whom the writer often uh, gently rebukes, sometimes not so gently, for their immaturity in the faith and challenges them to hang on to the faith, keep finishing strong, because they were facing by this time some pretty serious persecution. Nero had begun his reign of terror, was burning Christians at the stake, and uh, you know there was all kinds of unrest, and Christians were taking the blame, and, and so it was a tough time to be a Christian. Uh, I believe the book of Hebrews is probably more applicable today than ever before for at least us American Christians here in the West, because we're seeing a, a, a very clear marked rise in persecution. Uh, and I believe if the Lord tarries is coming, probably in our lifetime, and, and perhaps even very soon, we may face the kinds of persecution that many brothers and sisters in Christ have faced for the last 2,000 years in other parts of the country. We've been very blessed and very spoiled, uh, but we better be ready. And so uh, these Christians were, many of them, they were Jewish Christians, Jews who'd become saved by believing the gospel. And, but because of the persecution, many of them were contemplating abandoning the faith, uh, kind of departing and disassociating with the way, Christians, and going back into the old way of life with Judaism. Because they reasoned, in so doing, they would somehow insulate themselves from the temporal difficulties and struggles and trials and persecution of life. And so really the whole book of Hebrews is about don't do that. Jesus Christ, the one who saved you, is far better than anything else the world has to offer, far better than anything Judaism has to offer. Judaism was just the shadow. Christ is the substance. Stick with Christ. And even if you ultimately suffer the worst form of persecution, martyrdom, you're, it'll be worth it all when you see Jesus. There are great rewards to be had and great blessings in the kingdom someday. Keep your eye on the finish line and finish strong. That's essentially the message of Hebrews. So as we come to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we see five ways to finish strong. One of them, the first one here, is learn from the saints. Learn from the saints. Now, this word saint, uh, those of us who grew up studying the Bible and in a church context, we understand what saint means. But unfortunately, in the world at large, saint has taken on an altogether different uh, meaning. Uh, it's turned into something that it's not. It's certainly not uh, talking about NFL players from New Orleans. Um, I've spent some time in New Orleans, and I don't remember seeing any saints, uh, although I'm sure there are some. But uh, I've also spent some time around professional athletes, and uh, that's also another place where it's hard to find saints. But, you know, the Catholic Church taught, of course, that saints were those people who were highly venerated and had achieved some sort of quasi-divine status uh, among uh, the church. And, in fact, we should pray to those saints. But the Bible knows nothing of that sort of thing either. A saint in Scripture is simply one who is saved by faith and part of the family of God, a brother or sister in Christ. It's in contrast to unbelievers who don't know the Lord. So we see that the word used this way many times, for example, in Romans 15, 25, where Paul says, but now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, that is, brothers and sisters in Christ in Rome. Or 1 Corinthians 14, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, that is, believers, Christians. Uh, often, uh, Paul would begin his letters uh, referring to saints, uh, uh, for example, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, that is, the believers in Ephesus. The writer of Hebrews uses the word saints twice in his epistle, including at the very end when he says, salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. You know, uh, they of Italy salute you. So we need to learn from the saints. That's the first thing 
the writer talks about. And the first thing he does in Hebrews 12 is to appeal to that long list of saints that he had just provided in the preceding chapter, believers who had served the Lord faithfully and were representative of great men and women of faith. So he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, any good Bible student knows whenever you see the word wherefore, you, you need to look back because it points back to the immediate context. And in this case, it's pointing back not only to the immediate, what we call the Hall of Faith chapter there in chapter 11, but really to the entire argument that I just summarized a moment ago of the letter. Hebrews chapter 12 begins kind of a closing section of the letter in which he, having already talked about the superiority of Christ and the rewards that await us in the coming kingdom, and, and talked about the great men and women and examples of the faith that has gone before us, now he says, you too need to stay strong. So he goes on to say, we also, we also, this has been one of the things he's come back to again and again throughout Hebrews. We are facing tough times. He says, we are in this together. How can we get through it? There's a, a, a marked emphasis on the community of faith in the book of Hebrews. And that's why in chapter 10, he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And I believe one of the greatest challenges for the church in America today, if not the world, although many parts of the world have already been facing this challenge, is going to be to learn how to fulfill that command of scripture, which is so vital for the body of Christ to meet together at a time when we're being told more and more often that the state, the government, can dictate when and how we should meet, what we should wear, how often we should meet, how long we should meet, where we can sit, what we can sing, all of those types of things. I think we're going to see more and more of that. Don't think for a second that it's over. I think this was just a dry run, and we're going to see more and more pressure come uh, to bear on the church, and we're going to have to decide as uh, church leaders and people in, uh, of faith how we're going to respond in those situations. But uh, we also, we also, you know, you've heard of the Me Too movement. Well, this is the We Too movement back in, uh, back in Hebrews. Uh, we too need to walk by faith and support and encourage one another. And then he goes on to say, we too are, we also are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. So he's hearkening back here to the immediate uh, discussion in chapter 11 uh, and the unwavering faith that those saints of old had as examples. And this word witness is an interesting word. It's, as you may know, the Greek word martyr or martus is the Greek word. It's where we get the English word martyr. And it primarily, it's used 34 times in the New Testament, primarily referring to those who have witnessed or testified. Uh, for example, we see in Matthew 18, 16, when Jesus is giving instruction about disciplining a believer in the assembly, this is talking about the Jewish assembly in context, not the church, uh, he says uh, uh, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, that's that same word, martus. Or we could think of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, when Jesus told the disciples they would be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and unto the ends of the earth. Or in Revelation 1, 5, Jesus Christ himself is said to be the ultimate martus, the ultimate example, which of course is the point the writer of Hebrews has been making. He starts out in chapter 1, verse 1, with that beautiful description of, of Jesus Christ. You know, God, who at uh, diverse times and ways has spoken to us in times past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, who is the express image of his glory. Uh, 
And as we shall see, he's going to go on to say that we should look not only to the saints of old, but to the Savior himself as this ultimate witness. But the word witness can also mean martyr, as it has come to mean in the English translation, and that's the way uh, Luke describes Stephen, the first martyr here. Same word, martus, not translated witness here, but translated uh, martyr. And so if we go back to the text, uh, the saints of old were both, really. They were witnesses to the goodness and faithfulness of God, uh, and they were also martyrs, many of them. Uh, so they serve as both a model and a motivation. And uh, if they can do it, so can we. That's essentially the author's point. So we need to learn from the saints. It's nice to know that we have examples to look to. And by the way, as believers today, that should be one of the motivating factors for us to live for Christ. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot in the last two sessions about the erroneous view that you've got to do good works to prove that you're really saved. And if you're not doing them, it proves that you're not saved. Uh, at, at the back of getting the gospel wrong, we have an appendix that lists some 30 some odd motivations, biblical motivations for the believer to do good works. And it's never the right motivation to do good works to somehow prove to yourself or others that you're saved, but it is a very strong motivation among many others to, to live for the Lord and do good works as an example to others, to think about the little ones maybe that are watching. And we too, conversely, can learn from others who have set an example before us. You know, the top athletes in their field will all achieve greatness by studying other great athletes. You know, they watch film. Um, they learn uh, from, you know, their techniques. And this is true in any field, not just sports. I mean, world-class chess players, for example, study thousands of past games by other top players to learn from their moves. If you want to finish strong, it begins by looking back. There's a lot to learn from those who've been there before. Um, you know, it's a good thing, I think, to, to read a biography now and then of some of the great men and women of, of, the, of church history who set examples for us. So learn from the saints. Number two, the writer goes on to say, lay aside the sins. So secondly, you've got to get rid of the fleshly sins that hold us back. What does that mean? Uh, well, of course, we're never going to achieve sinless perfection this side of glory. We've talked a lot about how we still have that old man, that old fleshly nature that is constantly at war with our new nature and the spirit. But we can grow in our spiritual life and grow in our spiritual maturity so that certain sins become less of a problem. You know, just as an athlete learns how to correct his mistakes, a golfer, for example, over time might overcome his tendency to slice the ball. We, too, can grow in our spiritual walk and learn how to lay aside or avoid those behaviors that uh, set us back. So, uh, you know, he goes on to say, let us lay aside every weight and the sin with which doth so easily beset us. The simple fact of the matter is sin and the spiritual life don't mix. You can't be living a sinful life and hope to finish the spiritual race strong. As we grow in the Spirit and in the knowledge of God's Word, we become more and more sensitive to the Spirit's convicting presence. Conversely, as we harden our hearts and resist the Spirit, our hearts become more and more hard and layered, and it becomes harder for the Spirit of God to break through. And so that's why it's possible for a believer to quench the Spirit, grieve the Spirit, and ultimately fall away. So, But as we walk in the Spirit, we begin to recognize the traps that the devil might lay 
for us to try to set us off course. And as we mature in the faith, we're able to withstand a temptation more often. The writer back in chapter 5 and 6 of Hebrews, as you may recall, had already rebuked his readers for their immature faith. Remember, he said, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you've come again to need milk. So evidently they grew, as is so often the case in the spiritual life, for a while. But then something happened, and they began to, to backslide. They began to you know, revert. And I think that's where a lot of Christians are uh, today. And that's why it's so important that we stay in the Word and be part of a church like Grace Bible Church that really builds into our lives through the Word of God. And uh, you just can't continue to move forward if you're not in the Word and you're not uh, feeding the Spirit. You know, Galatians 5, Paul tells us the Christian life is a struggle. It involves recognizing our weaknesses and overcoming them. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can't be walking in the Spirit and reveling in sin at the same time. Why not? Because they're contrary to one another. That's what he goes on to say in the next verse. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Sounds very similar to what Paul described in his own personal life in Romans, which he would write uh, some 10 years after writing this first letter uh, to Galatians. Um, so if we go back to the text, he said, he talks about the sins which so easily beset us. Beset. That's an interesting word. And uh, in fact, the whole phrase, which so easily besets us, is actually one word in Greek, euperistatos. That's a fun word to say, right? Euperistatos. Uh, it's the only time the word is ever used in the entire New Testament. And if we translated it literally, it would mean the sin that stands well around us or easily encompasses us. One lexicon describes it as, an, as entangling and holding on tight, this besetting sin. So I think the author's making sort of a conceptual play on words. Instead of letting sin encompass us, we should call to mind the witnesses of the faith whose examples encompass or surround us. So he's saying don't be dragged down by these sins. Throw them off. Get rid of them. Identify them. Work on them. Uh, you never think of entering an important athletic contest without first formulating a plan, a strategy of some kind and recognizing your weaknesses. You know, if, if you're a football uh, team and you're playing an, an opponent who's got an unbelievable pass rush and you've got a weak line, you know you're going to have to shore that up. So you might put an extra fullback in the game or you might, you know, make a trade or do something to improve your line before you, um, you know, play the big game. Um, so how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, let's go to Romans 6. I think this is the quintessential passage, uh, really in all of the New Testament, on how to live the Christian life. You know, Romans is a pretty easy letter uh, to outline. Uh, he starts out in chapters 1 through 3 with talking about the sinfulness of mankind. and 4 and 5, he presents the remedy, the uh, love of God and Christ. God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Chapters 6 to 8 are all about the Christian life and sanctification. We get some justification truth in the midst of that as Paul is talking about the Christian life, but it's targeting believers. And here's how he begins. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So it's certainly possible to keep living in sin. Don't recommend it. And Paul definitely doesn't recommend it. And he gives us some practical advice here on how to not live in sin. He goes on to say, for he that is dead is freed from sin. So he says, likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, it's very interesting to me that in this great magnum opus of Paul, the, the letter to, to the Romans, um, you, you have to get all the way to chapter 6, verse 11, before you come to the first imperative, the first command in the Greek text. An imperative is a command. And it's right here in verse 11. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Um, in other words, we have to recognize who we are in Christ, that we're a child of the King. We can, if we really want to, we can go back and live like a pauper. We can go back and put ourselves in prison. I'm always reminded when I think about this verse of the old Andy Griffith show, we watched all of those with our kids. And of course, Barney Fife is the unanimous favorite in our family, as he is just about with everybody. But there's those multiple scenes and various episodes where Barney Fife walks into one of the two jail cells in Mayberry there and, and the, the door closes behind him. Often he closes it himself, you know, and then he goes, you know, and he realizes he doesn't have the key and he's locked in the cell. Well, that's the way Christians should look at themselves when having been freed from sin, having the indwelling Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. Uh, we nevertheless choose to walk right back into the jail cell and close the door. He says, don't do that. You're dead to sin. So live like uh, a free man. Uh, so lay aside the sins. One reason many believers fail to finish strong is because they've confined themselves to this prison house of sin, which limits their effectiveness. So how do we lay aside the sins? We reckon ourselves dead to sin, recognize who we are in Christ. It's an identity problem. You know, the, the answer to the Christian life is not to just try harder or do more or have some checklist. You know, most discipleship books that you find out there are nothing more than a checklist mentality. If you'll just pray this many minutes a day and share Christ with this many people a month and give this much money to the church and don't dip or chew or swear or do any of these bad things, you know, if you just keep this checklist, somehow you'll magically get more spiritual. And that's got the wrong approach. Those are all... Uh, the result of spiritual maturity, not the means of spiritual maturity. The means of spiritual maturity is to recognize who we are and live out the new life that we have in Christ. Live like a child of the King. Number three is to then lean into the suffering. So the writer now is going to deal with the issue at hand head on. His readers and us, by extension, needed endurance. This was no easy race. It was not a casual morning jog or some kind of stroll in the park. These were not first world problems. They were experiencing intense suffering. Suffering is one of the easiest ways to derail the Christian life. I talk about this in the top 10 reasons. Most Christians don't have a good track record, if you'll pardon the pun, when it comes to suffering. They just don't. We tend to obsess about our pain. When something tragic rocks our world in the flesh, we instinctively shift into the blame game. Uh, the writer challenges us not to do that. Don't shake your fist at heaven. I mean, it's okay to be honest and real with God. We see that in the Psalms. We see David often 
working through that thought process. But in every case, he, do, he never camps out there. He always resolves that those questions, like I'm thinking of Psalm 13, he always resolves them with a confident display of, yet will I trust him. And the writer here is challenging us to lean into our suffering. Don't recoil. Don't get bitter. Lean into it. Accept it. See how God wants to use suffering in your life. And, and know that you'll always come out the other side of the deep, dark valleys better for it. So we go back to the text. The writer says, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, there are two key words in this phrase, this last phrase of verse 1, that I want to focus on. The first is that word race, which is where I kind of took the title of this message. The word race is the Greek word agon. Agon, it's a noun. It's used six times, five by Paul and once in Hebrews. If Paul wrote Hebrews, then all six occurrences would be by Paul. It's where we get, as you might guess, the English word agony. Agony. The verb form is similar, agonizomai. It's used seven times. And uh, what we see here, if you look it up in a lexicon, is agon means struggle or battle. It's translated in Hebrews 12.1 as race. But it's more, again, than just a casual race with a water stand every quarter mile. Uh, sometimes you go 26 miles without a water stand in the race of life. Um, so it's an intense spiritual battle, a fight, really. Now, the world tells us the ultimate goal of this life is to be as pain-free as possible. Don't miss this. This is a key point. The world's philosophy is, is that we should be as pain-free as possible. Now, believe me, I'm all for pain-free, okay? But that's not the purpose of life. The Bible tells us the goal of this earthly life is to have as much faith as possible, to trust God as much as possible all along the way, no matter what this world throws at us, regardless of the pain we may face. So we've shifted our focus in this self-centered worldview. A life of no suffering is, first of all, just an illusion in a world under the curse of sin. Uh, it's a mirage. So stop looking for it. We may look at other people and think, boy, I wish I was like them. They never have to suffer. Yeah, they do. You know, Proverbs says, the heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. In other words, we don't know what people are going through. Frankly, uh, there's always somebody out there walking through worse suffering than what you're facing. And I know in a group this large, we've got people that have faced unspeakable tragedies. We have. My family has. But I can promise you that probably someone here has had even worse. But the point is, suffering is a fact of life because we live in a fallen world under the curse of sin. Now, as we're going to see in the worship hour, it won't always be that way, praise the Lord. We're going to see Christ come back and make all things new. But this word agon uh, refers to this intense spiritual struggle. And 1 Thessalonians 2.2 2 is one of the occurrences of this word, but it's translated contention. Same word, agon. Agon, it's this idea of a conflict Boldness for Christ, boldness for the gospel always brings battles, and we certainly know that. Satan hates the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Here we see that same word, it's the verb form, agonizomai, translated striving. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working. That is, struggling with this agonizing, often difficult task. 
Or same thing in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Again, agonitsamai. Uh, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. It really goes beyond just working hard. I mean, we, we understand that hard work is a good ethic to have, and it's frankly a lost ethic in this culture. But this is more than that. Um, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, very interesting, I have fought the good fight, both fought and fight, Paul says in this final epistle before he himself was martyred, are those words, fought, agonizomai, the verb, fight, agon, the noun. And the idea is the spiritual battle is fought by faith, not by flesh and blood. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews has been saying. Look beyond what you can see and feel and touch. Look beyond the Roman soldiers who are dragging Christians away. Look beyond the fact that they're taking your property. He alludes to that back in chapter 10, I think it is. Look beyond all the suffering that you're facing and keep your mind on things above because it will get better. So if we go back to the text, this is the race that's set before us. I'm sorry to bear the bad news, but that's the way it is. There's no way around it. You know, some people uh, try to uh, paint a picture of the Christian life that it's all joy. Now, we can have joy in the midst of suffering, as James talks about, um, but we need to remember that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. So if your goal every day when you wake up is to avoid the pain, uh, you're missing the point. We need to lean into uh, the suffering. Lean into the suffering. And so, you know, this is not easy. Um, yeah, I talked to a friend on the phone just a couple weeks ago who was going through horrific, intense suffering. In fact, uh, you know, if you look at some of those uh, lists that psychologists have created that talk about you know, if you're experiencing one or two of these, you're really in, in danger of some severe depression and severe problems. And, well, this guy had like eight out of the ten on the list. I mean, it was, I mean, I just, my heart went out to him. And, you know, what could I say? I mean, I wish I had a magic wand that I could just wave and make it go away. And all I could do is on the testimony of Scripture just say, lean into it. I mean, it's not going to go away and unless the Lord wants it to. Lean into it. So that's the key to finishing strong. But a fourth key is to look to the Savior. Uh, so we get to verse 2. We've already talked about, you know, endurance and setting aside the sins, remembering the examples of those who've gone before us. But ultimately, it comes down to fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's been the key for, of this letter from the beginning. Um, uh, it's all about Christ. Look to him. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The walk of faith begins with Jesus, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, and it continues with him. We walk by faith, not by sight. And ultimately, it ends at the finish line when we see him face to face, as we'll talk about in the next hour. We shall see him as he is. But Jesus, the ultimate example, as the author and finisher of our faith, endured the cross, endured the cross. That word endured, we didn't have time to really get into it, but it's the word hupomeno, uh, the verb form, and it means to put yourself under, to abide under. And so again, he, Jesus himself embraced the cross. He embraced the suffering. He leaned into it. Um, uh, he could have called 10,000 angels. If anybody could have avoided the suffering, God himself in the flesh could have, but he set the example. And he did so, by the way, for you and for me because of our sin. Um, so where are you looking? 
Maybe that's part of the problem. Where is your focus? When we face suffering, we've got to resist with every fiber of our being the, te the, the, intent, the, the tendency to focus on our suffering, right? And instead, you know, look to the Lord. Um, and then finally, we need to look forward to ultimate salvation. By salvation here, I'm not referring to deliverance from the penalty of sin. Remember, we talked yesterday about how in the Bible, the word salvation 60% of the time actually refers to deliverance from temporal, physical danger, harm, sickness, that kind of thing. So it does refer 40% of the time to eternal deliverance from the penalty of sin into heaven, but it can also mean temporal deliverance. And ultimately, our deliverance is going to be into the kingdom. We're going to leave this old world behind, and we're going to enter the kingdom. And the, the idea of ultimate deliverance into the kingdom one day is a theme the writer has brought up again and again. A lot of people miss early on in the book of Hebrews this passing reference to what the book is all about. And the writer says in chapter 2, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. The whole book of Hebrews is really calling them to look to the world to come, which makes sense when you realize how bad the world was for that first century Jewish Christian community. And it's bad right now all over the world for many people. And, I, and it's bad right now in America. And it's only going to get worse if the Lord does not uh, come back uh, soon. Uh, so in here in our text, we see a veiled reference to this future kingdom. When he says at the end of verse 2 that Jesus Christ, having endured the cross, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's he doing there? He's waiting. The throne of God is a throne in waiting. Never confuse the heavenly throne with the earthly throne. Make no mistake, Christ is going to come back someday, just as he promised. He's going to take the throne. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. All the governments will be upon his shoulders. He will tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God. He will execute judgment, and he will rule the world as the King of kings and the Prince of peace. And it will be a time of unprecedented peace and righteousness and justice. But that's not the throne he's on right now. The throne he's on right now at the right hand of God is the throne in waiting. Waiting for God to say, it's time. Waiting to come back and set the next phase in motion. And when he does come, Jesus said, he will sit then upon the throne of his glory. He's not there yet. And so a lot of our expectations as it relates to suffering are not going to be realized until he comes back, uh, and we are delivered into our ultimate salvation. And what a day that'll be. God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death or sorrow or crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. When will this happen? When he sits on the throne, which he's not on that throne just yet. And when he's sitting on the throne, he's going to say, Behold, I make all things new. You know, we like new things, don't we? Um, and boy, there's a lot of old things that I wish we could get rid of right now. Um, but sometimes we're just going to have to abide this life of suffering, and we're not going to see the remedy in our lifetime until Christ comes back. So look forward to ultimate salvation. It's a tough race. Hang in there, because it'll be worth it all. So I think the five steps that are the takeaway for me, anyway, from this passage is learn from the saints, lay aside those sins. There are some practical things we can do to help 
strengthen us as we grow in the faith. And there's a connection, by the way, between faith and works. We talked about that last night in the brief overview of James 2, 14, that they, they work together. As we serve the Lord faithfully, it emboldens our faith. As the more we trust God, the more it helps us obey him. There's a dynamic relationship. Lean into the suffering, look to the Savior, and look forward to ultimate salvation. So here's uh, the takeaway, going back to where we started. Rosie Ruiz didn't finish strong, but we need to not quit until we're through. Too many Christians throw in the towel way too early, and it's going to be more and more important, especially as we see the trajectory of things in this world, if the Lord doesn't come back soon, that we finish strong. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just this uh, well-known passage that has so much uh, powerful truth in it that can really touch each of us in unique ways, as your word always does. We pray that it would not return void and that it would help mold and shape us into the men and women of, and young people of faith that you, uh, that you want us to be. Thank you again for this time here at Grace Bible Church, and we pray your blessings now as we uh, head shortly into our worship hour. In Jesus' name.